If you've been with us, you know we've been studying uh, the gospel according to John. Uh, the thesis statement of the gospel of John is so, these things are written so that you may believe, and in believing come to, essentially, uh, my paraphrase, come to faith in Christ, uh, knowing who he is, uh, trusting him, believing in him, following him, and then uh, proclaiming that uh, to the world around us. And so here in John 14, we, we, we continue now this uh, upper room discourse where uh, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He's talking to them, and he's preparing them for what is to come. So let's look here at John 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 uh, with us. I'm going to pray. I would ask that you uh, pray as well, and then we will look at his word. Verse 1 of John 14 uh, reads this, Would you now hear the word of God? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, this morning we are grateful that we get this opportunity to spend time in your word, studying the scriptures, exploring what you have written for us to then understand our Savior better. So we ask now that your spirit would be at work We ask that your spirit would work in the lives of each and every individual here. I ask through Jesus that you would help us however we may need. Would you help each and every person here to leave different than they walked in? Would you help bring conviction where needed and comfort as well? And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So at some point in our lives, in all of our lives, we have all dealt with a troubled heart. And I don't mean the central organ of our body. I'm talking about the core of our complex being, the center of emotional, spiritual, and moral design. Uh, Right now, just in this church, uh, the members of Christ's Covenant Fellowship, there are many troubles at hand. As elders, we meet with you, we pray for you, we are aiming to help you to walk through the troubles that you're going through. And so we have firsthand experience for what many of you are struggling with today. There are relational issues, marriages that are struggling, that are on the brink of falling apart. There are families who are struggling, families who are 
uh, just broken by one thing or another, uh, parenting issues, kids who have walked away from the faith, the, then the, the everyday effort and goal for parents to try to shape and train their children in the knowledge of God's word, helping them to, to see the, the beauties of the gospel, the beauties of Christ. I mean, it's a tough, laborious work. There are many that are dealing with infertility issues that are praying, God, would you bless us with a biological child? There's some that desire here to be married, that wish that the Lord would provide a spouse that would, would be a, a godly partner in this life. Uh, some that are dealing with sickness, that are struggling with uh, one illness or another, or maybe have family members that they have lost recently due to different circumstances. Some in here that are wrestling with doubt, that are struggling with their faith, that, that are wondering, like, am I truly saved? Is this message of the gospel that I received, is it real? Was my profession authentic? Am I showing signs of regeneration? Some that are struggling financially, uh, that are working hard, that are aiming to make ends meet, but just, I mean, things just never seem to add up. They don't ever have enough to pay the bills that are coming in. I mean, the list can go on and on and on and on. But I think we all get the point. And on top of the real and present troubles that each and every one of us uh, deal with, the ones that like, are, are actually happening in our lives, we all often deal with borrowed troubles as well. Uh, borrowed troubles are those things that have, that have not yet happened, but we, we bring them on as if they are, are ours. Uh, kind of that anxiety, the, the anxiousness that we may have in this life for the things that haven't happened, but yet we wonder if they will. And so that brings trouble to our environment. Whatever the cause, we are all at risk. None of us are immune to feeling the effects of a troubled heart because we live in a world that's infected by sin. This world is not how the Lord originally designed and planned for it to be. But brothers and sisters, there is hope. Uh, there is great encouragement. See, God's word gives us an answer. God's word provides the remedy for anyone dealing with a troubled heart. In our text today, we see the cure for the troubled heart. Uh, if you recall, as I mentioned, Jesus has withdrawn himself from the public ministry, the public crowds of Jerusalem. And now he has dedicated this time right before the cross of Calvary to his people, to his most loyal followers, those whom he's called to himself, the disciples, the apostles. And he's with them in an upper room of a Jerusalem house. He has told them at this point that one of them is a traitor. He said, one of you will You'll turn me over. You will abandon me. You will sell me out for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, he sold another one, the, the group's leader, the, the captain of the team, you could call him, Peter. He told Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter's like, never. <laughs> yes, you will, Peter. You will deny me three times. He's also told them that he is leaving them. He, he is going to leave. The hour has come. And guess what? They can't go where he's going because where is he going at this point? He's going to the cross. He's going to pay for their sins, something that none of us can accomplish. He gives them a new commandment. In spite of all this, he says, hey, guess what? Love one another. 
There's a lot going on, and here's what I want you to do. Love one another as I have loved you. In other words, the way that I'm showing self-sacrificial love to you the way, is the way that you should show self-sacrificial love to one another. I mean, so these brothers are stressed. They're perplexed. They're confused about their future. I mean, the disciples have just tasted a glimpse of, of heaven, right, on earth. Uh, they, they've, they've grabbed a, a little bit, a little portion of what that first time before sin entered. They've gotten a glimpse of what it meant to walk with God, to be with God, to fellowship with God, to witness the miracles of God. You should think about that. I mean, the last three years for these brothers has been quite the ride. And now they're being told everything is going to change. Everything will change. Everything you have come to know now, everything that you love, guess what? It's changing. I'm going. I am leaving you as you know it now, and I'm headed to Calvary to die. So what does Jesus do here? In the midst of this perplexity, the profundity of what is being taught here, in the midst of the struggles, the reality that things are changing, that the future is going to look a lot different than what these brothers had imagined, Jesus gives them some answers. First, we will see the cure for the troubled heart. We see that first and foremost in verse 1. And then the following verses, so after verse 1, after the foundation has been set, he gives them six promises, six promises that support the cure that he's given to them. So we see the stated cure, then six supporting promises made by Jesus Christ to encourage his disciples and us, all of us today, how to press on, how to face the temptation to be troubled. So pick up in verse 1 of chapter 14. And remember, hey, this is a continued conversation, right? There there was no chapter divisions uh, in the original text. So this is continued same night. He, as Pastor Gabe left off last week, this is continued conversation. So verse 1, after he has just told them that Peter is going to deny him, here's what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So first observation here, foundational truth, the core principle, the understanding that we must all get to here is that believing in Jesus is the only cure for a troubled heart. It is belief in Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the matchless, the, the, the sole, one-of-a-kind Savior. It is only him that can truly satisfy. Listen, there is nothing that is compatible to Jesus. There's no one that can be a replacement to Jesus. There is no substitute. There is no alternative. There is no other solution. Listen, personal successes fall short. Relationships fall short. Financial success falls short. 
There's nothing that can replace the fact that Jesus Christ is the only hope in this life and the life beyond. It is only Christ, brothers and sisters. See, the core problem of the disciples' trouble is a lack of belief or trust in Jesus Christ at this point. And so the question we must ask ourselves, if you're a Christian in here, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, part of the redeemed, are you believing, are you trusting in Jesus daily? Are you truly taking the words that are given here? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. I am God. Trust what I say. See, I think oftentimes we, we say we believe the words of God. We believe the Bible. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. But then when it comes to practice, putting the rubber meets the road, we fail to execute accordingly. No, Lord, I don't trust what you say. I, I trust my circumstances. I, I trust what I see. I, I trust what's right here in front of me, what's real and present. Rather than trusting God continually and faithfully as he's called us to do. Listen, Jesus at this point is the one that's going to the cross. He is the one that should be getting the consolation. He's the one that should be getting the encouragement. Pastor Gay brought that up last week that, I mean, it's, it's remarkable that none of the disciples we read are really saying like, wait a minute, Jesus, did you just say you're going to the cross? Like, what can we do for you? Jesus is continually providing the answers, the care, the support, the encouragement, everything his followers need, even when they are struggling to do what he's called. Listen, church, Christian, the Lord will not fail you. God loves you. He will provide exactly what you need. If you're a non-believer in here, and you're searching for answers anywhere else than faith in Christ and Christ alone, let me assure you, you will continue to search. There is no hope outside of Christ. I, I like to picture it if you picture a kid uh, that chases bubbles. My kids love bubbles, right? You, you bring them out, you blow the bubbles, and they go up in the air, and they chase the bubble, and what happens? You touch it, it's gone. I mean, that's what it's like to chase anything else in this world other than a relationship with Christ. All of the other replacement theories, replacement theologies, replacement philosophies, are like bubbles in the air. As soon as you reach them, they're gone. They provide no lasting hope. They provide no present hope. It will all fade away. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Do not lean on your own understandings. So what does that mean? The things that you understand are not the things that you should rest upon. What does he say? In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Church, let me encourage you. Trust in Christ. Trust the words of our Savior. I mean, this is what we see here in this text. We see him pointing to himself, nothing external. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Trust in me. And that is the starting point. I mean, that's the foundation, friend. 
And Jesus really would have been justified to stop right there. I mean, he could have just said, hey, look, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in me. I'm God. I mean, look at everything that's happened. You'll see what's about to happen. But no, our Savior continues to provide answers. He continues to give support. So let's look here at these six supporting promises. First, Jesus promises a secure, eternal destiny for all who believe. Secured, eternal destiny. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now listen, we all long for heaven. Every single one of us, whether you're a believer or non-believer, you have a longing within to be with God. You were created for that. We are made for more than life in this fallen world. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, everyone has sought to restore the effects of a separation the separation that sin has brought in, we've sought different ways to try to uh, mediate on our own terms. We want to make sure that we mitigate the effects. We, we want something to, to fix what is wrong and the longing that we have within. One of the most famous quotes sums this up well. I've used it many times. Augustine he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And we have a restlessness within us that is only answered in a relationship with God. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've had a relationship with a parent at one time or the other that has been estranged. You've struggled to connect. You've struggled whoever's fault it might have been. Maybe there's been a time in your life, or at least maybe you know someone that has that type of situation. No matter whose fault it was, you feel the effects of it, don't you? You always know that there's just something not right. Even if you're like the one that's living in folly and sin and you're just making a mess of your life, you understand that this relationship that was given to you, parent-child, there's something wrong. If you discipline a young child, if they've done something wrong, most often, most likely, they have that shame. They, they don't want to share what has just went down because they know they have infringed upon the relationship with their parent that is supposed to be. So in the same way, we all, every human being, man, woman, and child, has that longing within us. We know that there is something that is wrong. There is something going on. And Jesus says he's the only one that can provide the reconciliation needed between God and man. It is him himself. So he says here, I am securing your eternal destiny. That longing that you have, guess what? I'm going to secure it. I'm going to make sure that it can indeed happen Brothers and sisters, that's a promise to us as well. Those that are in Christ have nothing to worry about eternally. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And then he goes on. And he promises his personal presence to all who believe. This is our second supporting promise. He promises his personal presence to all who believe. We see that in verse 3. He says then, and if I go and prepare a place for you, so he's banking this on what has just been stated. 
He said, so if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Uh, If you take notes in your Bible, underline that where I am, you may be also. Listen, this shows us here that the benefits of heaven are not the streets of gold, or not the, the uh, removal of sickness, the, not the removal of pain, death, tears, not the removal of all the things that we don't like here. That's great. But the reward of heaven is Christ himself. It is Jesus. It is him. It is his presence that will secure our greatest longing. It is that we will finally be with God. Listen, and we won't go all the way down this road, but heaven is not even permanent. There are new heavens and new earth. So when Christ returns, he will bring heaven to earth and restore what was originally designs. He will bring heaven to earth here. All things will be made new. So heaven is not the end goal. It is fellowship, relationship, communion in perfect unity with God. Listen, if that's not your end goal, if you were only looking for the tangible benefits of what God has to offer, then, friend, I I would encourage you to to ask the Lord to, to open your eyes to the greater realities of Christ, to the greater realities that Jesus Christ, the, the person, the work, the invisible, made visible, the perfect image of God, restored unity between God and man. That should be our hope. We see that here in this text. Also in the New Testament, there are 318 allusions or direct references to the fact that the Lord is going to return to take us to be with him personally. So essentially saying, wherever I am, there you will be. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we will be with Christ. We will be like Christ. We will have perfect Union with the Godhead. That is a joy. It's the greatest benefit we will ever, ever experience. I mean, here Jesus promises he will personally return to take his people to be with him. And this speaks of Christ's second coming where he will return to raise the dead. He will return to to judge all of creation. But he says that my people, those who believe in me, will be with me forever. Third promise that we see here is that Jesus promises that belief in him, so he's building on this, right? He's Belief in him is the exclusive way to God. It is only through Christ that we have this relationship. I mean, do you see the Christology? That's the uh, theological word for the doctrine, the theology of of Christ here. I mean, this is is grand. This is a, a picture of our Savior that is almost unpainted anywhere else in Scripture. This is a self-revelation 
of Jesus, that he is communicating them these things about himself to help his disciples to, to put some steel in their spine as they face the troubles and tribulations ahead. And he says here, I am the exclusive way to God. Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. First, we see in verse 4, and you know the, where, the way to where I'm going. That's Jesus continuing. He's building on what he's just said. And so Thomas, verse 5, what does Thomas do? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So here, Thomas, he really misunderstands what Jesus is saying. He wants a, an address, right? He wants to plug something into the GPS. He wants to say, he wants to know, well, where do we go? How do we meet you? If we know the way, what can we do to get there? Jesus said to him, I am the way, verse 6. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So listen. What Jesus is saying here is that believing in him is not a waste. He's saying here that I am the only way to God. Belief in me, service to me, following me. Trusting who I am is not a wasted life because I am the only way to eternal communion with God himself. This is the sixth I am statement. And this really sums up the rest of them as well. As he says here, kind of in totality, I am the way, the truth, I am the life. This also shows Jesus is the one who fulfills the threefold covenantal office of God, priest, prophet, and king. I want you to look at this with me for a moment. As Jesus says he is the way, Jesus is showing that he is the promised priest, the one who would come and would then be the sacrifice for our sins and also the mediator of the new covenant. I am the only way. I am the only priest that anyone will ever need. Second, he says, I am the truth. Uh, there's a lot to this. Clearly, he's saying that everything I say is true. But if we look at that threefold office, priest, prophet, king, we see that he is the one that is the, the truth teller, of all truth tellers. He is the prophet. He is the truth of the Father. He is the Word made flesh. He is the final Word of God spoken to his people. We'll look here in a moment at Hebrews 1 where we read that. Third, we see that he is the life, and that's kingship. What is a king's job? The king's job was to produce an environment for uh, just flourishment, for thriving, for life to be well. A good king, what does a good king do? He provides a way for all of his people to live an abundant, full, glorious life. And Jesus says here, I am that life. There's many other places where Jesus has said, I am the life. There's different ways that we could apply this, but I want us to catch this here. I mean, listen, there's no mistaking that Jesus is making a claim to deity here. There's absolutely no mistaking his claim to be God. If anyone ever questions that, point them here. Show them this section of Scripture he says, I'm the king. I'm the one. I'm the prophet. 
I'm the priest. I'm everything that has been promised. I am who you need. I mean, here Jesus tells his followers he is the exclusive way to God. Listen, any other religion that promotes anything outside of exclusivity in faith through Christ is wrong. There's no other way to God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no way to obtain eternal salvation apart from faith in Christ. See, it is by grace through faith in Christ, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. It is all his purposes, all his glory. And Jesus is the only way. And here he is securing, he is allowing the, the concrete to, to settle. He's hoping here that this will, will really permeate in the disciples' mind, that they will see that all that they have done, all that is to come, is worth it. And church, that is what we should see too. Fourth, Jesus promises that belief in him is belief in the Father. So he's, it's kind of a, could be a sub-point of the last one, but here we see in verses 8 through 11. We won't spend as much time here, but let me read this for us. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. So what happens here? I mean, how many times have we seen in Scripture where someone says, just, just show us your glory. Show us. Show us that you are really God himself. Remember time in the Old Testament where someone asked, show us, show me your glory, and it couldn't even look upon the face of God. And here Jesus answers this. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So, I mean, Jesus answers Philip's concern here. He's like, hey, you've seen me. You've seen God. I've been with you. I've shown you. I've taught you. I've guided you. You have been with God. Haven't you believed, Philip? And we must take into account here that this rebuke is a gentle rebuke. It's a calming factor here. He's not rebuking Philip and telling him to, to go off. He's saying, no, hey, Philip, I, I've been with you. Now, now let me even show you more of how I am the Father, how I am God himself. He says in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now listen, this is Trinitarian language here, okay? The, the Trinity is a very complex doctrine that, listen, none of us will ever fully comprehend. We will never understand how God, according to our confession of faith, the New Hampshire Confession, here's how it states it, okay? Let me read this for us. Trinity. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, equal in 
every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Listen, we will never fully comprehend the intricacies of the Trinity. But here we see that Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. We are God. I am God himself because the Father works in and through me. I in and through the Father. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 1 of John's gospel in the prologue, if you recall, John writes that the Word was with God, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was God. So John's language hasn't changed here. He is continuing to communicate the same prolific Truth that Jesus and God, Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father, they share one divine essence, one divine nature. Yet Jesus is not the Father, nor is the Father Jesus. They are distinct persons. Uh, One commentator is helpful here. He says that they are in one another seems to speak to how their shared nature and knowledge, programs and purposes result in constant communion, ongoing intimacy, unfaltering fellowship. End quote. So while it's a hard doctrine to understand. It's a hard theological concept to grasp, one we will never fully grasp this side of eternity. Nevertheless, it is true. And here's where we see it. Now listen, this should put some steel in our spines. Like, like what does the Trinity matter, right? Like, why does this even matter? Why even bring it up? Because we can be confident that the Jesus Christ that we proclaim is the God of the universe. We can have confidence here, brothers and sisters. We can trust fully and wholly that Jesus is God. And so when we proclaim the authority of Christ, we're proclaiming the authority of God. Fifth. Jesus promises that those who believe will do greater works than him. Some of y'all that read this uh, before today couldn't wait till we got here. Like, what are these greater works that we're talking about? Let's look here in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now let's stop here and look at what's happening. First, notice that this is a truth for all believers. It says whoever believes. Guess what that means? In the Greek, that means whoever believes. It's everyone. Whoever All who believe in Jesus will do greater works. They'll do the works and greater works. So there are no super elite Christians. There are not those that do works of Christ and those that don't do the works of Christ. It says whoever believes will do the works of Christ. So here's a good um, self examination, time to take good inventory of our own lives. Are we doing the works of Christ? The question is, what are the works that he's speaking of here? But let me just assure you before we get on, just to kind of put this, pin it right here, post it. 
If you're not doing the works of Christ according to what he's proclaiming here, you might not be a Christian. So what is he talking about? Now listen, people have taken this out of context to come up with so many erroneous uh, theologies and so many things that have just been abused and misused throughout the world. Uh, Faith healers, prosperity gospel teachers that, that use this and distort it in a way that just rips it from its context. And says, well, yeah, now you you got to do greater things than Jesus. So there's two possible answers here. One, that Jesus is talking about miracles. That's what the faith healers, that's what the prosperity gospel proclaimers would preach. That Jesus is talking, when he says works and and, and greater works, he's talking about miracles here. The things that he did, the works, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. And I just want to, like, we're going to take a quick survey of the miracles that have happened up and through this point in the Gospel of John. And remember, John says, I didn't record everything. If I would have, then there wouldn't be enough books in the world. The world couldn't hold all of the books that there would have been written. So Jesus did many more things than what we even have recorded in scripture. But let's just take a quick survey. One, he takes water and turns it into wine in John chapter two. Uh, second, read the, he read the mind of a Samaritan woman in John chapter four. He healed the official's son in John chapter four. He healed the man crippled for 38 years in John chapter five. He fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. In John chapter 6, he walked on water, John chapter 6. He healed a man born blind in John chapter 9. He raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for days in John chapter 11. And and what's to come is that Jesus will actually die and, and be raised himself. No one in history has ever done the miracles of Jesus. No one has ever walked on water. No one has ever healed the way that Jesus has healed. No one has ever raised the dead. And clearly all of us, which the text tells us here, that whoever believes will do these works and greater works. I've never done any of these things. Have you? So I think the logical answer here is that he's not talking about miracles. Uh, Even those, my charismatic friends that are here with me, we're welcome, glad you are with us. We love you so much. But even your own theology oftentimes forgets that uh, properly applied, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says that not every believer will get all of the gifts. So what are the greater works? What is Jesus talking about? Our second option would be that Jesus is speaking about the works Christians will do after his exaltation on the cross. So look at the text with me. What does he say? He says that you will do greater works than these because what? I am going to the Father. So what does this mean? Namely, Jesus dies and goes to the Father. He pours out his spirit on his people. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get into the, uh, some of the work of the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus in context continues to explain. The work of the spirit in his people how that's going to be better for them. Scholar Don Carson, D.A. Carson, is helpful here. He says, quote, In short, the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death, insofar as the former belong to an age of clarity and power introduced by Jesus' sacrifice 
and exaltation. See, listen, we have a unique opportunity as post-cross, resurrection, exaltation Christians, okay? We have a very unique opportunity because guess what? We get to talk about what's already been done. Before Christ dies and is exalted on the cross, appeasing God's wrath, making propitiation for our sin, all of that was a forethought. It was of what was to come. But then once Jesus does it, guess what? We get to say, it's happened. He's done it. Praise be to God. He was who he says he was. He is who he says he is. Redemption has been accomplished. It has been finished. There's nothing left, brothers and sisters. Furthermore, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to pour out my spirit. You will then be my witnesses to what? All the ends of the earth. If you remember, Jesus' ministry was very localized. He spent his time with his disciples, with those around. Now, obviously, it caught wind. People knew. But now, and we see in Acts, when Peter preaches 3,000 are saved, then they all go and they're preaching the gospel, proclaiming, because now they've heard the gospel proclaim that Christ has come, that he was the Messiah, that he died, that there is salvation, and it's belief in Jesus Christ. Now there are greater works that we as his people get to do. Furthermore, we also have been called back to that new commandment. And what was that? Love one another, just as I love you. If I tell my children, Daddy is going to do something, after I do it, you should do the same thing with those around you. Until I give them that solidified example, it's pretty hard for them to accomplish it fully. Here Jesus says, you're going to do greater works. It's not about the miracles. Don't cut yourself short. All of the miracles of Jesus were only authenticating his claims of deity anyway. He's showing here, I am God. And I'm doing these things to prove, to authenticate my message. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is helpful. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So long ago, prophets, now Jesus, he's come, he's shown. I wish we could spend more time there, but we must move on. Finally, our sixth promise is that he will answer the prayers of those who believe. And we're not going to spend as much time here because he goes on and he communicates this in further detail. And Lord willing, we will get there next week. But let's just read 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified. That was an intentional pause. We've got to grab that. He may be glorified in the Son. 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now listen, this is not a blank check for all of our prayers. This isn't like, Lord, you said it. If I ask it, you're going to do it. 
So this doesn't mean that everything we say, if we tag on in Jesus' name, it's going to happen. It's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is that the sum of all the other times, if you look through Scripture, if you do a, uh, uh, if you've got Lagos or you do a, a biblical uh, search in the ways that Jesus has said uh, about prayer and what he says about praying the, this way and different things, this is kind of a sum of all of that. Saying, if you pray according to my will, according to the Father's will, uh, in my name, as my people, then guess what? These things will happen. But it's not always the way that what? We expect it to. It's not always the way that we want it to. How do I know that? Romans chapter six, or 8, sorry, verses 26 through 28. The Apostle Paul is giving us a great instruction about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit's work in and through us. And here's what he says. You can look this up later. I will read it for us now. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Third person of the Trinity, Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But what happens? The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So sometimes we pray. We're praying for one thing. The Spirit's, no, no, that's not what they need. They're saying that, but that's not what they need. They need to stay in this situation. They need sanctification. They need to feel the pain and the burn of what's going on. They need to persevere in the trials, the tribulation. Listen, friends, this is good for us. Think eternally, not temporally. This is good. Paul goes on and says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then he goes on, he gives that good promise that we all love, that is a great promise for Christians. 28, and we know that for those who love God, what? All, you can say it with me. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. So Jesus gives some clarifications here. He says, I'm God. You pray, you're according to my will. Everything is going to work out for your good. Everything. So brothers, sisters, is your heart troubled? What are you dealing with right now? What's going on within your life that is causing trouble? What trials and tribulations have you just left, are, are currently in, or are facing? The answer, the solution, the cure is Christ himself. It is a solid foundation in him. So brothers and sisters, believe. <laughs> believe in Jesus. He's promised a secured eternal destiny for all who believe in him. He has promised his personal presence to all who believe in him. He's promised that belief in him is the exclusive way to God. He promised those who believe will do greater works than him. His spirit will work in and through you. He promises that he will answer the prayers of those who believe. So keep praying. 
Keep searching. Keep asking God to work his will, not yours. Because that's what he does for his people, for his glory and for our good. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful uh, that we are your people. We're grateful, God, that even when we struggle, when we doubt, when we are faced with circumstances that are far beyond what we would wish upon ourselves, God, you are working all things according to your purposes. Let us remember that your purposes are greater than ours. Let us remember that our Savior went to a cross to secure our eternal destiny. So whatever this world throws at us, let us be people of eternal understanding. We need your help. We thank you for your word. I pray for those that may not know you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Would they turn to you? Would they repent for their sins, their rebellion, and would they turn their eyes to Christ, seeking and searching the only true and living Savior? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.